Hurry into Ram Power Days and experience the raw power of the Ram 3500 with available best-in-class torque and towing among 350-3500 pickups when properly equipped. Strap yourself in for one powerful ride in the Ram TRX with the most horsepower of any gas pickup ever built. Or the Ram 1500, awarded number one in driver appeal among light-duty pickups by J.D. Power three years in a row. Hurry into Ram Power Days going on now. For J.D. Power 2022 U.S. award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Hi, everybody. I'm Ted Price from Insomniac Games. On this episode of the Game Maker's Notebook, my guest is Kiki Wolfkill. She's the studio head of Halo Transmedia Entertainment at 343 Industries. She has an awesome job as she bridges the gap between games and traditional media, bringing Halo to an entirely new audience. We talked about her unique history, including her career as a race car driver, what transmedia really means, and the importance of diversity in our industry. Welcome to the Game Makers Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Makers Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, it's been it's awesome having you on. Yeah, and what a setting, right? We are here. That's right. We are here <laughs> in Las Vegas, looking out at a beautiful view of the Strip. A little cloudy today. It is a little cloudy. It's been cold, but yeah. the energy level here is great. Indeed. Well, you say cold. Now you're from Washington. You live in Washington, so this <laughs> is nothing true. compared There's to Washington. There's no snow here as there is in Seattle right now, um, but it's a little cooler than I expect. I'm wearing a jacket. Right. That's that is unusual for a Washington native whose blood is probably much thicker than <laughs> than our Southern California. Your, your, your tender Southern California bloodstream, yes. It is well I uh, and just mentioning Washington, one of the one of the connections you and I have is University of Washington. Yes. I have a daughter who goes there and you are an alumnus of That's right. University That's right. of Washington. I went to uh, University of Washington, I went to the Jackson School of International Studies there which prepared me well for a career <laughs> in video games. Now, you say that somewhat facetiously. Yeah, it didn't at all. <laughs> I, was a, <laughs> I was a Chinese history major. However, I went back to start a second degree in broadcast journalism because I wanted to make documentary films. Hmm. So I learned how to um, shoot and edit um, at the time with traditional tape, um, which then got me into digital editing and effects work, and then games. So it was all very serendipitous and when, unplanned. That's cool. So when you say effects work, you're talking about mm-hmm. effects work for traditional media? Yeah. I'll age myself and say that I got into uh, digital video, and it was lucky because it was early, so it was kind of a black art. So if you were just persistent, you could sort of break in. Um, and was doing... Uh, got into avid editing and flint and flame compositing and effects mostly for cinematics and okay. started doing it for games at Microsoft and that was sort of my entree into video gaming so back then were you taking real footage of say explosions and flames and then compositing them in games or using creating sprites there was some of that so there was some sprite you you're gonna laugh at this there was some uh, <laughs> like 8-bit sprite work for our golf game so compositing yes real humans who were then put into 8-bit form and then composited into 
the virtual golf spaces. I think that's that's super cool. I, <laughs> I mean, that was that's working within a certain constraint that games had at the time, right? That's right. And that was actually what was so exciting for me. I'd always played games, didn't really realize that they were made by people and companies. I don't know where I thought they came from. <laughs> <laughs> Someone needed to educate me. Um, but when I when I started to get, I'd had an art background as well, and so when I started to get into the digital um, editing and, and effects work and doing work on games, the technical challenges were so interesting. Like it was a whole different kind of creative problem solving. Um, and even working with those crazy 256 color palettes was, and making something look as real, like a character as real as possible um, with those constraints was just, um, I found it really compelling. And also being on sort of the cutting edge of technology, right? Well. Film was on the cutting edge of graphics technology, but real time uh, for us, um, always being on that edge and that landscape always changing and the nature of the challenges always changing and you know this sort of constant push for incremental improvement and fidelity um, was really compelling for me. What was the first game that you released? The, let's see, the very first game I believe that I worked on was Cart Precision Racing, a okay. indie car simulator PC game. And were you doing the effects on that? Yeah, so I was doing um, the 2D animations for their racing school, but ironically, um, uh, I was also uh, racing cars at the time because I, long story, but I'd grown up around motorsports. And uh, I was also an instructor at the local you know, racing school. And so the Cart Precision Racing Team had called the racing school and said, hey, we need a subject matter expert to work on the racing school section. Do you know anyone? And they said, well, there actually is someone who is, there's an artist over in the production studio. Um, and so I was subject matter expert for the racing school. That's incredible. Yeah, which an uh, incredible set of coincidences and opportunities. Uh, and I was contract at the time, contract artist, uh, and then ended up joining uh, Microsoft Game Studios full-time uh, as an art artist and art lead. Well, I just have to ask, do you still race cars? So I still drive on the track. I don't competitively race, um, formally, I should say. Um, I race a lot on the street. Um, but yeah, I raced amateur for, um, I think, about six years and pro for about six years after that. It's always been part of my life. I love driving. I love driving fast. Um, I took a break actually when I joined um, 343 because I just didn't have any, uh, any, any time for it. And just recently uh, got a new track car and got back on the track and it's been amazing. What, what is a track car for those of us well, who don't know anything about racing? So it's, um, I should say it's a track optimized car. So it's a Porsche GT4, which is, uh, they designed their GT cars more for track, meaning they're more sparse, right? Okay. I don't have heated seats. I don't have cruise control. Um, I drive it on the street all the time because I love driving it. Um, does it have roll bars? They're a little bit lighter. No, this does not have roll bars. Um, I only ask that because that's about the only technical term I know when well, it comes to it's racing cars. When I first started racing as a struggling um, racer, my street car and my race car were the same. So I used to have um, a car that had a full roll cage in it, racing wow. seats, 
getting in and out of that in a skirt was nightmarish. <laughs> so you're driving um, to work. It was super in the loud. It was so uncomfortable, right? Because of the suspension. Oh, that's um, fantastic. Yeah. And ironically, there was a freak accident and a tree split in half and landed on that car. But because I had the full cage, <laughs> it was actually aside from some suspension. Uh, it survived, Breaking. or you yeah. survived from it. Well, Were you I was in the not car? in it, but okay. but the car survived to race another day. Yeah. Do you did you bring anything from your racing experience over into games? Um. Yeah. I mean, I think in a in a few different ways. Um. I would say, um, from a sort of my own um, ability to sort of navigate chaos with, um with focus and calmness, I think, is something that probably I built some muscle around driving. Um, you know, sort of letting letting the chaos happen and being able to to focus on the right priorities and not let it um not let sort of the stress of a crazy situation um impact my judgment was something that I think I take away from that experience. And then also, you know, environmentally, especially back in the like 90s and 2000s, it culturally wasn't very different in terms of both environments being really male-oriented. Hmm. And I think uh, for me, being able to be, um, to sort of navigate that gracefully um, and sort of keep my, again, sort of keep my focus on the things that were important and not letting that noise be a, a distraction was was a good thing. I think today I look at it very differently because the noise isn't just a distraction, it's something we need to address. Okay. So I think I spent a lot of time sort of tuning things out that now I feel uh, are really important for me to pay attention to to try and help improve. Well, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. What What are some examples of the kind of noise that we need to tackle? Yeah, and you know, it's, it's amazing um, because the environment, even in the last six months, is so different, and in, there's such a good intent to improve. I think from um, certainly from our company, but also I think the industry as a whole. Um, but you know, it was not unusual at all to be the only woman in the room all the time, and you know, same with at the racetrack. And I, and you know, at the racetrack, I would say people were even more sort of brazen with their commentary around being the only female out there and whether you should be there or not, or expressing their disgust at being beaten by a woman, which was extraordinary. Um, yeah. I mean, that was, that was a lot more sort of explicit because I think that kind of environment is just sort of more emotional and unguarded. Um, and competition doesn't always bring out the best in people. Um, but I think uh, in the game industry, it was the same. Like they're just, you know, I got used to being in an environment where there weren't a lot of other women to talk to. And I would say I was really fortunate because even coming up, you know, I, I came up at Microsoft and Xbox with Bonnie Ross and with Shannon Loftus and with these incredible other women. And we were sort of each other's pack. Um, and a lot of people didn't have that opportunity. Mm. Um, and so I think today there is, there is, an understanding of the importance of inclusion for humanity reasons and the importance of inclusion for business reasons. And I think 
it's a hard time because it's it's so hard to navigate and it's scary to navigate and feel like you're walking on eggshells um, and wondering if the thing what you're saying is okay or not but that's sort of the pain you have to go through to come out on the other side and have a better workplace culture where do you see people walking on eggshells I think that um, I think where it comes from is um, and I, I will even say this for myself because I, I'm not always like I I have a potty mouth. I'm really expressive. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of nuance in terms of what it means to be in a room and make sure making sure that everyone feels comfortable with different communication styles and um, and it it's not just the the really sort of explicit bias. Right, like that's sort of the easier thing to to curb. It's that in order to create a really inclusive environment, it is about inviting different perspectives and also accepting that someone may not like harsh language or may not, you know, appreciate um, uh, like a really loud voice or like any number of things. There's uh, and for me, I've had to sort of take a step back and make sure that you know me in the past where I might have, I'll be super open here, where I might have been like, that person's being a dick, right? And that's just not right, you know? And and that causes a lot of self-reflection and that's scary, right? And I think for a lot of people, sort of treading that ground feels really intimidating and mm -hmm. they don't want to do the wrong thing. And so then it, it causes just sort of uh, a, a little bit of a, a stepping back and I think we all have to be comfortable with we're all trying to figure this out together. Yeah. And it's okay for us to make wrong moves and it's okay to be corrected in a in a graceful, constructive way. And that's not a bad thing. That's just how we all get better. Um, but it's it's new ground. How how do you set ground rules then for say groups of people who are coming together for the first time to work on a project and you have a very specific idea for how you want uh to to make inclusion possible mm -hmm. or have a, a common language that's not going to offend people. Is there, are there techniques you use? Or? Yeah. And it's, I think that's where it's hard because you don't want to, you don't want to set such rigid groundwork that that isn't necessarily inclusive either. It's, mm -hmm. it's how do we come together and let's be respectful of each other. Let's be respectful of each other's styles. And if someone doesn't feel comfortable with something, be comfortable saying that and be gracious and comfortable getting that feedback. Right. Because it's organic. You sort of have to figure out as you go along, you know, what is the right balance of all of those things? Because you don't want to dull everyone's personality either. Yeah. Right. And that's the that's the tricky balance. Do you find yourself inner inner getting involved and in inner solving interpersonal contracts, uh, conflicts on the teams that you lead? Yeah. And I think that's um, I think that's normal. And I think especially in the game industry, um, so much of what we do feels so personal mm. and our teams feel really personal. You know, we invest so much time and emotional energy into the things that we're creating that the idea of you just show up at work, you do your thing and you leave and you're respectful of your peers and everyone does the thing they need to. I think it's different for us because we are sort of family, like we're in the trenches together. We are going through trials and tribulations together. And so, um, I think that, uh, you know, in that family sense, you do have to figure out these things as you go along. And, and the interpersonal stuff is really important, right? I find that in the past on different teams, 
Sometimes it's a mediation role. Sometimes it's helping two people communicate with each other who just have different styles. Um, but I, I think we, we need an environment where people feel comfortable mm -hmm. coming and saying, I'm, I'm having challenges with this person or that person or we're struggling to work together or um, you know, we have to be able to work through those. How do you get to know the people on your teams really well so that you can sort of anticipate those problems or at least deal with them in a way that works for them? Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is encouraging your teams to show up as sort of their authentic self. And that's, hmm. and that's part of creating that inclusivity in the environment where people feel comfortable doing that, right? So that when they're in a meeting room and they're having conversations, they are showing up as who they are and, you know, their beliefs and the things they're passionate about. Um, are expressed, you know, I, I will say early in my career, I kept my work and my personal life really separate. Like I felt, I felt like I needed, a, a my work persona. Um, and I, you know, part of that I think was a defensive mechanism. Um, again, sort of being one of, uh, just a few women. Um, but I soon learned as I started to step into more team leadership roles, that I needed to be more of who I was. I needed to show more of my personal self and include them in my life and talk about, you know, my family and things happening at home or the things I was doing or my weekend, because that's the kind of bond we needed together, especially when we would go into battle together. And so I think fostering that sense of, um, you know, not asking people to share things they're not comfortable with, but but we should have a level of understanding of each other where we empathize with each other and we connect with each other is more than just the role that someone's playing. I think that's really, that's excellent advice. It is hard as a leader to sort of let down your barriers and allow people to see what you're really like at outside of work yeah. and, and talk about your interests. Yeah. I, I just personally feel like that, but I think that's, that's anybody who's a leader should be considering that. Yeah. And doing it more frequently. Yeah, because that, that encourages that same culture of, you know, we have to have each other's back yeah. through this, right? And so having um, a level of understanding of what makes a person tick, what excites them, and just having that personal connection means, A, when there is conflict, hopefully you come into it assuming that their intentions are good and wanting to assume the right things about the conflict as opposed to, you know, in a vacuum of understanding who someone is, you tend to jump toward to the worst conclusion versus the better conclusion. Yeah, that's a great point. So in leading teams at 343, talk, talk if you don't mind, talk about mm -hmm. how you went from creating effects early on to actually becoming the uh, team leader for Transmedia yeah. at 343. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say I, I feel lucky in that... Um, uh, I have had great opportunities come up. I will say I've also always been very quick to take them and also make good on them as much as possible, even just moving into games, which which hadn't been a career path um, I would have thought I'd been on, um, but once I was in it, could not leave. Uh, so yeah, so I came up uh, then through the art side. So I was the art lead for um, a lot of our racing and simulation games early on, so pre-Xbox, PC, um, Monster Truck Madness. I remember that one. Yeah, yeah. Monster Truck Madness 2, Motocross yeah. Madness, uh, Shannon and myself, and a very good friend of ours who's now uh, heads up YouTube Gaming, um, and uh, one other woman. We were the ladies of Madness. 
Uh, was, wait, was that was that your just your person your internal moniker, or yes. did everybody in the studio know you as? Oh no, we were the, the yeah. Why I, was it madness? We, we may have started it because of all the because we worked on the motocross madness oh, right, and monster yes. truck. Yeah. Was there some? Was there some Midtown other town madness? Well, was there? Were there any other say uh, characteristics ascribed to you that well, related to the madness? You know, I would say that we were all. Um, a, we were all very, uh, I would say, not outspoken. We were all very comfortable with expressing ourselves. We had fun together. When you're working on games like that, you have to have fun. Um, our morale events were a thing to behold. So, what was the craziest the madness, morale the event? Madness, oh my gosh! So when we, so we worked on, I think it was Midtown Madness two maybe i hate that i it's either one or two i think it was two we worked with angel studios okay. in san diego yeah and so we ended up having our ship party uh in san diego i don't think we could have a morale ship party like this again um but uh uh basically uh angel studios brought in a case of tequila and we rented out this amazing bar and it was great because it was it was kind of a hard production cycle and um someone had brilliantly i may blame this on shannon someone had brilliantly decided that we were going to do the postmortem for the project and and the teams at that point were a little contentious everyone was fried we we're going to do the postmortem for the project the day after <laughs> after a case of tequila <laughs> after our ship party and a case of tequila um which we did finish off um and it was probably the best thing that happened because we all, we of course bonded over the case of tequila. We all rolled into the postmortem a little bit um, unwell and yet bonded in a different way. And, you know, then you remember why you, you were partners in the first place. Um, you know, so in talking through real postmortem issues, the emotional intensity of those conversations was dropped a lot lower. Um, I won't go into specifics of the ship party, though, but it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so after that, uh, Xbox came along. And it was such an interesting transition for us coming from PC gaming because it wasn't just the shift of designing for Xbox and, and understanding what a console game is and developing for console and working with console partners. It was also a shift for gaming at Microsoft in terms of really understanding that content needed to be a priority, which it's ironic to say now, but at the time, PC gaming for Microsoft was all about sort of driving DirectX and driving Windows as a developer platform, um, but not about being the best experience on PC, but hey, look, we do these games, you can create games in Windows as well. Obviously with Xbox, it was a whole different story. It was we need to define a bar and what's capable on the console to bring other developers onto the platform and players. But obviously early on about, it was about bringing partners on because we were such an unknown. And at the same time, I was doing a lot of work internally to really try and advocate for the art discipline because you're a huge software company that made Excel and Word and SQL Server and the idea of creating content and art in particular, an equal challenge for game design and audio was just a language and a culture that the 
broader corporate company didn't understand. Yeah. And so I was doing a lot of work internally to build out like the art laddering and levels to make sure that we were compensating artists well enough. At the same time with the shift to Xbox was the, the amount we need to invest in content and the quality and fidelity of that content needed to be so high. And it was a, it was a big cultural shift in the, in the company, but a really exciting challenge. And so I went on from there to, to be the art director for the racing studio. Uh, and then that uh, sort of broadened to, um, uh, to working on games like Mass Effect and Gears. And again, Bonnie was there heading up production through that period. Um, I, was on the, I was on the art side, um, as well as on the racing side, the Project Gotham Racing Series, starting up the Forza team, which is now turn 10 and um, uh, an extraordinary studio relative to the humble beginnings. Um, and uh, ultimately ended up as the director of art for all of Microsoft Studios. And I think what happened was during that period, I, I tended to really get energized and um, express some different strengths, particularly in sort of the, the end game of a project. Um, and I'd always sort of had a good foot in production as well as in creative, and so was able to both sort of bridge conversations across creative and production, but also really help problem solve and really think about how do we maintain this vision while solving around our production and technical constraints, um, and particularly in the sort of high-intensity atmosphere of shipping. And so uh, at the time, Shane Kim was running Xbox, and you know, probably about six months before sort of the Bungie spinoff and doing a reorganization and creating 343, he'd asked me to move into a, an executive producer role and a cross-discipline leadership role, which was really exciting for me because uh, a whole different kind of challenge creatively and from a leadership perspective. And, uh, and I, at the time, I said, I, I would love that, but I have some more work to do here on the art side, which was really kind of seeing through that from an HR perspective, that artist career development structure and plan. Um, and so after that work was complete, it was right around the time they were doing this reorganization. And, um, and you know, there was an opportunity to join what would then become Turn 10 uh, as an executive producer. And then Bonnie came and talked to me about a role on 343 as she was putting that studio together. And on the one hand, I love racing games. I have a lot of experience there, but I really um, loved Halo. And I loved storytelling. And I loved the universe and the IP. And the opportunity to really dig into that was, um, was extraordinary. So that's when I joined 343, which uh, I guess was probably 2008. Halo 2 time period? So this would have been as Halo 3 ODST was being developed. Okay. And so they were working on Halo 3. Bungie was working on Halo 3 ODST and Halo Reach at the same time. And when I was director of art for Microsoft Studios, I actually worked with Bungie a lot on Halo 3 okay. um, in particular uh, and with Marcus Leto at the time. But yeah, at this point, what we had decided was um, Bungie's going to finish Reach, the next Halo not called Halo 4 at the time. We didn't know what it would be, but really the, the successor to, to Halo 3 was kind of up in the air with what we would do there. At the same time, we were um, 
uh, working on a, a concept with Peter Jackson potentially about a um, a Halo game, and so that's actually what I was brought on for. To, and to then, work with him and his team to figure out what it was going yeah, to be? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it was something that Bungie had been working on in the past. And ultimately, we ended up deciding that the studio really needed to focus on the next shooter, the okay. next big Halo game. And so um, I started building up the Halo 4 team uh, and uh, was uh, basically, we built Halo 4, which was an extraordinary experience and I, I can't even begin to express the depth and breadth of learning for me of that experience. Um, and then after Halo 4 shift, uh, shipped, really started to shift more into transmedia. And I, I will say that we always had a vision, and Bonnie always had a vision of, of Halo as... Um, as a Star Wars in terms of the kind of emotional connection and loyalty to the universe um, that people could have. So there was always a North Star of, of Halo as a cultural touchstone, but we had business to attend to, which was getting Halo 4 done. Uh, and, uh, and so it was really after that that we were able to be a little more focused and deliberate about what that would mean. What does it mean to grow our universe and how do we be deliberate about it? Because we'd always had... We'd had books and comics and and fleece jammies and all sorts of good of books. Things. By the way, I remember reading the Great Halo books, books were entertaining. So, um, sidebar on that: when we when Halo CE, when Halo Combat Evolved first came out, they gave it to us a, a day or two early, and they gave us Halo: The Fall of Reach, the book. And I was like, oh my god, like I'm going to read this book, <laughs> and and then stayed up all night um, playing uh, Combat Evolved. And that was such an extraordinary experience for me. I, I loved that game. I loved how, um, how much part of that story I felt mm -hmm. and how I felt as Master Chief. And I finished that game and I literally just wanted more. Yeah. And I turned around and the book was there. And I read the book. And, and after the book, I was completely hooked because it gave me just a really different understanding of, of Master Chief and John and and what the game was built upon. Um, and so that, that's what brought me into the universe, and, and I didn't want to leave after that. So if we encountered hostile aliens someday, would you sign up as a Spartan? Yes, actually, I think I probably would. Yeah, yeah. And with your racing background yeah. and yeah. team leadership skills, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. We I, would need Spartans like you. Yes, I'm, I would be in. Do you believe aliens exist? I have no, I have no reason not to. Yeah, I feel the same way. Like, like this, this. Why wouldn't stats, you? Why wouldn't you are, believe? Like, there's, yeah. there's, in a, in a gap of data, it seems harder to disprove. Yes. Than it would be to prove. I'm totally so, with you on that. Yeah. I, I, I bet our industry feels, for the most part, the same yeah, way. Like, why not? But I also believe in ghosts. So. Fair enough. I right, would, yes. and that's the same same issue, right? Yeah. It's hard to disprove it. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry for that sidestep. No. But I just had to ask you because yeah. I, after reading those books and, uh, and and experiencing the Halo universe, which I think was hugely influential for us at Insomniac mm -hmm. as we were building shooters, uh, it, it it's a compelling story and it kind of makes you think, yeah. you know, outside of the sci-fi trappings, 
what would you do when faced with sort of a global catastrophe like that? Yeah. Would you sign up? Would you, yeah. would you go for it? Would you be a leader? Yeah. And there's something so simple about the stakes, which is, I, I think, what makes it so relatable. It's like humanity is at stake. Yeah. Like the, everything that we hold dear is at stake. And I think underlying that is the idea that, that we are worth saving. Like I think that nuance is important. Right. It's 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 not just that everything's at stake. It's that we should fight for ourselves, not just out of selfishness, but because our humankind is something that is worth saving. That's a great I I believe that may be a theme that's often missed by mm -hmm. players, but it absolutely I feel like it goes throughout the series. Yeah. And would you say that's part of the sort of the heart and soul of Halo you're bringing over into transmedia? Yeah, it is. And it's um, uh you know, it's funny because this, the simplicity of, of that, you know, against a rich sort of complex backdrop, but the simplicity of that, I think, is what makes it so, so easy to connect to from a game perspective. It also makes it an interesting challenge as you go into other mediums mm. and is something in particular, um, you know, with the television show and the complexity of storytelling that, that premium cable and television brings it's been it's been a learning experience in terms of deconstructing our own stories and universe to understand how to carry that forward in that particular medium. I think in books it's a little easier because you have a, a captive audience and you have an audience that loves sci-fi and getting deep into sci-fi details or that sci-fi backdrop is a little more straightforward. Um, when you start getting into a television show where you have to really grab people right away and take them on a long journey of storytelling. It's really different. And, um, to get, to get back to your question first, you know, when we think about the IP, like there's, there's all the trappings of Canon, right? There's the assault rifle and plasma and the, the you know, different covenant enemies. There's like, all of the proper names that come with Halo. And then there's all the history, the dates and what happened when, and, and most people have no idea what those things are. And in fact, we have deep history where maybe an event has been referenced once in a sentence in a comic somewhere. But for us, that history is alive and chronicled and real. Um, but I think more importantly, there's um, sort of our, our brand pillars and what we call our beliefs, which are sort of the thematic elements that are part of that core DNA and really anchor Halo um, with our players and viewers and fans and hopefully are the things that we carry forward regardless of what we do. What, whatever the form factor is, whatever time period it is, hopefully we're embodying those beliefs um, and that's something we, we really try and communicate with our partners but it is um, that sense of hope, mm -hmm. right? It's a dark story. It's a very dark story and dark universe. And it's important that there is that sense of maybe we can prevail and, um, and maybe uh, um, there is always that light at the end of the tunnel and we have to have sort of those moments of light and levity so that we can contrast the dark moments um, in the story and events. Um, but that piece is always important for us. As dark as it is, we're going to keep fighting because we think there's a tiny chance in hell we may win, and that's still worth fighting for. 
um, uh, wonder and mystery. Like it's a sci-fi universe. We want people to feel like you want to see whether you have anxiety and it's a little scary. You want people to see around the next corner and explore and, and have those moments of coming out of the bumblebee and stepping out into the world and seeing that halo ring and feeling awe and wonder. Like that's the kind of sci-fi that we are. We're not sterile, polished, um, super high tech sci-fi where these worlds people have never seen and creatures you've never seen. Um, and you know, for me, that's a big draw. I love, I love that sense of mystery and I love, um, the curiosity it, it sparks in me. Um, are, are most of the people you're working with on the series mm -hmm. Halo players? It's a mix, which is good, right? Because a, we drink a lot of our own Kool-Aid yeah. and it's delicious. So, <laughs> um, so we need people coming in, right? From, um, not just to have deep expertise in other areas, but who also don't come with all of those, um, deep seated notions already of what Halo needs to be. Yeah. Um, cause sometimes it's even hard for us to be objective about it and to, and to let go of things that we feel are really critical, but at the end of the day actually aren't the thing that make Halo what it is. Um, and that's sort of a moment to moment process to, to filter and understand. Um, and so we do have some number of people who have experience and it may be that their experiences, they've always played the game. It may be that they, you know, they've read all the books and they really are the sort of deep canon, uh, fans. Um, but for us, we do a lot of education. So we'll do big boot camps, not just to explain all the proper names of, you know, this is what a plasma grenade is. Um, but also to explain, you know, here's the nature of Chief and Cortana's relationship, right? Here's, here's the whole history uh, of them together. And also here's how player have ex players have experienced them. Because I think the thing that's been so unique about uh, this TV adaptation process is we have to take a look at the characters and you know we can use John as an example Part of what every player understands about Master Chief is what they've heard or seen in the games, in cinematics, and how other characters talk about him. The other half of what they understand about him is what they themselves have put into him as a player. And so that becomes a really complex challenge as you think about translating that to screen. And to, you know, for the TV show, we want our audience to come to that. We also want to bring in you know, the, the people on the couch next to you who've watched you play Halo and never quite understood why you loved Halo. We want to bring sort of your broader circle into the TV show and people who maybe would never engage with Halo as a video game, bring them into the universe. And so how do you take a character like Master Chief and, and sort of fully develop him and have his character arc be something deep and interesting when everyone has a different understanding of who he is. And so you have to be respectful of who he is, carry his character forward in ways that are very different from the game, and try not to disrespect everyone's personal view of who that character is. 
Um, and that's a really tough challenge that we're navigating right now. Okay. And it, it's one of those things where it's, there, there's no clear answer. Yeah. And part of that is what's really exciting to me, which is there has certainly been financial success in video game adaptations, but it's hard for, for someone to say there's just been a, you know, knock it out of the park, great video game adaptation. I, I feel like I understand why now. Hmm. It's so hard. And my instinct is to keep hanging on to to things as we know them. And we have such talent on the television side who's writing amazing television. And in letting go of some of those things, it's been really um, amazing to watch the story come to life in such a compelling way. And, and being okay with some of those differences in, in character or, or how very specific events of, of canon are dealt with, but make for a great story and still adhere to the spirit of, of Halo um, has been really interesting. And how, I guess, what, what I hear you saying too is that you're balancing what you know fans love about the series with surprising them, but also being true to the medium of television, right? Yeah. yeah. Be because it's different. I mean, completely different. It right? is. And what we've committed to in partnering with Showtime and, you know, wanting to be premium cable is really character driven drama hmm. against extraordinary Halo world building. Yeah. Right. Cause this is a huge, you know, it's a, big budget, high fidelity, um, story. And, um, you know, the video games develop characters differently. Yeah. And again, part of the design of characters is so players can invest their own, you know, sort of personalities and beliefs into those characters. And so when you take that piece out of it, it it's risky and also exciting. Do you find other shows inspirational as you make this shift away from games into television? Yeah. I mean... Or, or any, any other sort of non-gaming yeah. uh, pieces of work. Yeah. It's hard to find an analog. Um, you know, we, we talk about Game of Thrones a lot in terms of sort of scope and scale and complexity of relationships. Because it, it's funny, because a lot of the background of Halo is this sort of political drama, right? And and it's something that you touch on really lightly in the games and see more deeply in, in some of the other mediums. Um, and so I think in something like a Game of Thrones, some of that complexity uh, is interesting. Um, no incest planned at all for this show. <laughs> Good to I'll know. say that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you're looking for that, you won't find it here. Um, uh, and, and to be clear, I'm, I'm absolutely not asking, are you guys patterning your show on something oh, yeah. that exists? I'm more interested in your personal interest. When you are yeah. relaxing and not playing games, yeah. what are the shows that really uh, attract you in terms yeah. of their drama, characters, world yep. building? I mean, Gosh. Game of Thrones is a great example. Right? Yeah, and I, I, so I'm a huge fan of Game of Thrones, and I read all the books before I started watching the show, um, and uh, I really admired how they adapted. You know, they stayed very close to the books, 
um, before they started branching away. The thing I always admired about those first two seasons when they were more closely coupled was when there was a shift, you could understand exactly why, because it was such a great story. So it never felt like there was a change for change's sake. Yeah. It always felt like it was in service of, of better storytelling. Um, and that's something we for sure aspire to. I think our challenges are a little bit different coming from game versus book, where it's, I think it's a little easier to be literal with the book. Um, but, uh, you know, I think um, I watch a lot of different TV. I love Westworld, even though, frankly, a lot of the Westworld storytelling happens in the conversations after the show. Um, I kind of enjoy that aspect of it. Um, and uh, the visualizations of, of Westworld are amazing. Um, we do look to a lot of the old sci-fi, not old, old and existing, right? If, because there's totally so much that's different out there. If you look at The Expanse or Star Trek um, or Battlestar Galactica, you know, we try and calibrate a little bit. And I think this will feel really different from those, um, partially because we're, we, you know, it really is a big investment from a visual perspective. Um, and uh, um, Altered Carbon would be another one. Like we're really intrigued with sort of the, the sci-fi offerings out there. Um, and uh, um, I don't know. I, I feel like we will have a unique space in there. You, you are, at least from my perspective, going to do something that very few of any game IPs have done successfully. And it seems like the industry has tried very hard uh, over the last 25 years to make a crossover that really sticks the landing. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I understand now why it's so hard. I feel like part of what's so exciting for me about this is I, I want to crack that nut so badly. Right. I hate it. I hate it when people say, oh, you can't do that. You can't make a movie or a TV show out of a video game. No one's ever done it. Like they're always bad. It's like, well, it's not because you can't. It's because it's a really hard challenge and everyone's still trying to figure it out. Yeah. Right. But there isn't something inherent in the format of video games that makes it impossible um, to adapt. Um, it is just a, it's a hard challenge. And like I said, literally day to day, we are making decisions on, on what can change, what shouldn't change, what can we bend. Um, and we are putting a lot of our, our trust in our TV partners. Like you have to be, humble and recognize that the expertise you're bringing is different from the expertise that they have. And you have to be able to take that leap of faith and trust that the things that they want and are lobbying for and need are the right things. Um, that's probably the, the hardest part is that that leap of faith. Um, but great words of wisdom. I think if we look back at some of the more high profile failures in our industry, when it comes to moving to traditional mediums, that's kind of where we've gotten in our own way assuming that we are experts in that other medium when the case is hey, yeah. people have been working doing that for 30 years, 20, 30, 25 years. Yeah. And they are experts and yeah. we need to trust their judgment. Yeah. Even if you've been reading about it for 30 years, it's not having been doing it for 30 years in the same way. We certainly wouldn't expect a TV writer to come in and, and just go ahead and make a video game, um, better than we could. Although you never know. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so that's been a that's been really interesting, and I think we've been fortunate. This 
this process has been really long. Hmm. Um, you know, we've been talking to Showtime and working with Showtime for five years to get this off the ground, um, which has really been a struggle at times um, because it's not the fun part when you're in that five years. That's like contracts and finding people, and it's not sort of the creative um, juice of it. And we went through some some uh, talent changes. But what I will say is we've landed in a place where we have such a strong partnership with Showtime and with the team, and um, I think that there is a great mutual respect. And if we come out of it on the other side and it's not everything we wanted it to be, I will say for sure that we went about it the right way in terms of the partnership and the collaboration and I have no doubts that we will have moved the medium forward in some way. You know, whether it gets us ultimately to where we want to go, I do feel, I do feel we will move that ball forward in, in, in some way. But, but today I would say my hope is, like I said, we, we crack that nut um, and create something that, that um, brings the universe to life in a different way. And, and brings a video game to life in a different way. And I think there's a mutual respect from an audience perspective that I hope happens from that as well. Uh, well, I, th I think the time is perfect, right? Yeah. There's, it does seem in terms of audience, there is so much crossover. We have people who are playing games more or as much as watching TV, vice versa. And that's this, the whole current gener gamer generations. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like treat both equally versus when you and I got into the industry. Yeah. It was a lot different. Oh yeah, and and so I, I absolutely applaud what you and three four three are doing, and I think it's going to be a huge win for the industry. I hope so. It's creatively incredibly exciting and incredibly stressful. Yeah, <laughs> like it just um, you know it's hard to understand when you're being too protective hmm. um, and uh, and stifling the creativity on on the other side of the fence that you need to let have some more space and room um so but a constant challenge i mean that's yeah. that sounds so so just to ask a couple final questions mm -hmm. uh you've you have a fantastic and super interesting background in terms of how you got into <laughs> the industry and i know a lot of people who listen to this podcast either are are in the industry many are in the industry but we have a lot of folks who are listen who want to go into the industry yeah. and yeah. what advice would you have for them especially uh women who yeah. are perhaps thinking about pursuing degrees that would lead them to our industry. Yeah. I mean, I would say, um, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, I had a liberal arts education. Um, I always studied art. Um, and obviously my entry into the, the industry was through art. Um, and at the time I didn't really understand uh, I, I thought because I was creative, and frankly, I was told this all through school. Because you're creative, you're not gonna, you're not a math or science person. Wow! Right? Like you're just kind of Ouch. bucketed, right? And so I kind of grew up believing, oh, I hate math and science, right? And and I think what I ended up loving about coming into the game industry and and starting to to work in the digital space is I discovered that they weren't mutually exclusive, and the kind of creativity that was unleashed when I suddenly had all these digital tools was far beyond anything I could have done traditionally. And that was so empowering. And, and I think of myself 
as someone who is firmly in the technology space, right, which I never would have thought I would have been in before. And so in terms of, of career, you know, creativity isn't something that has to be sort of siloed in its, on its own path. A, every single person on the team is creative, whether you're a programmer or a tester or uh, uh, a producer. And so it kind of goes both ways. Um, STEM is an area where you can be incredibly creative and, and be challenged as a creative in ways that you, you never really thought about before. And alternatively, you know, you can be a programmer and think about your job as creative. And so just in terms of women coming into the industry, I would just think very openly about, you know, STEM can empower you to choose what you want to do. And I, I think that was the thing I wish I had learned earlier, so I hadn't fallen into uh, the job that I did. Um, but I think for anyone trying to come into the industry, just start making things. Find game jams, find the meetups, find the community of game developers where you are, because there's so many and it's so welcoming. And actually making the content and getting the experience of um, working with a team and collaborating, because it's those soft skills of collaboration and problem solving together that make someone effective in the role and that give you experiences that you can put on your resume and talk about in an interview that isn't just the curriculum you learned, right? It's the pieces that actually make teams run. And the more you can build with other people, the more you have to show and the more you can talk with experience about what it is to make a game. Um, versus just what you've studied in school before. That is such great advice. Thanks. So if people have questions for you, do you mind sharing your Twitter handle? Yeah, not at all. It's um, it's just K underscore Wolfkill. It's very straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I am happy to talk game development anytime, getting into the industry, certainly transmedia. Um, I'm really passionate about... Um, sort of what it means to express a universe in different ways and let people into a universe in different ways and finding ways to really build connection with players and viewers and, you know, something that goes beyond, I'm going to play through this game and put it down. I want that lifelong love. I want it, you know, to be something you want to share with your friends and family. Um, and so I love thinking about what are those stories and play mechanics that, um, that really grab people um, and, and don't let go of them. It's awesome. Thank you, Kiki. Yeah, it's so good to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.